Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by PolicyPack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also by Liquidware, providing enterprise-class management solutions for physical, virtual, or cloud-based desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. In a pretty interesting work-from-home-related story this week, Deutsche Bank came along and tried to piss in everyone's Cheerios, quite frankly, with the suggestion that people who choose to continue to work from home once the pandemic clears and it's a choice rather than something that's mandatory, they should be hit with a 5% tax levy. A Bloomberg report on the report claims the tax could raise $48 billion a year in the United States and about 16 billion euros in Germany. They claim this tax levy and this windfall would fund subsidies for low-income earners and essential workers who are unable to work remotely. The proposed levy would be paid by the employer if they don't provide their employee with a desk, whereas if the worker decides to stay home based on their own needs, they would be taxed for each day they work remotely, according to Deutsche Bank research. In the United States, the strategists calculate such a tax could pay for a $1,500 grant to the 29 million workers making under $30,000 a year and who are unable to work from home. There's also an argument being made that infrastructure was built up over a long time to support the working world of yesteryear. I've read in the past myself that big cities in particular will hurt long term with cafes and restaurants losing a lot of business from breakfasts and lunches that people would have been purchasing when working within the city who are now not buying them because they work from home. There is a quote in the article saying, it does make sense to support the mass of people who have been suddenly displaced by forces outside their control. Those who are lucky enough to be in a position to disconnect themselves from the face-to-face economy owe it to them. So I try to steer clear from politics and so far this is not really politics because it's just a private bank's own research but i'll keep it brief anyways and just say this is utter bullshit and as others have pointed out on twitter it sounds like the kind of research provided from a company who has assets in cities like retail space and office space that all of a sudden is looking like it's going to devalue considerably Let's all hold back our collective tears for Deutsche Bank. This week, Apple revealed their new range of Macs. The latest MacBook Pros, MacBook Airs, and iMacs are available to buy on the Apple site, complete with the new M1 processors that have 8-core CPU and 8-core GPU 
that promise superior performance plus improved battery life due to the increased efficiency. Unfortunately, as always, there is a considerable upcharge for storage and memory upgrades, but it looks to me at least like the hardware has been improved on previous iterations, at least of the MacBook. It looks like they're getting closer to that old keyboard that I know and love on my 2013 MacBook Pro. And actually speaking of which, in less frustrating Apple news, Big Sur, the new Mac OS, was also released this week. You can get it now on the App Store. And if, like me, you are still rocking a 2013 MacBook Pro, it looks like it's actually compatible. I had thought that this was going to be the end of the line for the 2013, since the 2012 Macs were no longer compatible with Catalina. But it looks like we get to live to see another day, which is cool. It's particularly cool for me because I'm a little bit weary of the first run of the MacBooks with the M1 processors. So I'd like to hold off for a little bit and see how they go. For a full list of what models are compatible with the new Big Sur, you can check that out on the Apple website. And ZDNet I saw also has a screenshot of that too. According to a report from ThreatPost.com, Cisco has disclosed a zero-day vulnerability for which there is not yet a patch in the Windows, macOS, and Linux versions of its AnyConnect secure mobility client software. While Cisco said it is not aware of any exploits in the wild for this vulnerability, it is said a proof-of-concept exploit code has been released, opening up risks of cyber criminals potentially leveraging the flaw. And this flaw is labeled as CVE-2020-3556, and it's an arbitrary code execution vulnerability that has a severity rating of 7.3 out of 10, making it high severity. The flaw could allow an attacker to cause a targeted AnyConnect user to execute a malicious script. However, in order to launch an attack, a cyber criminal would need to be authenticated and on the local network. So, it's not that easily exploited, but there is that proof of concept exploit code out there, so it is still something you'll want to patch sooner rather than later. Cisco also issued updates for 13 other high severity CVEs across multiple products, including Cisco WebEx Meetings Desktop Collaboration App, which is a mouthful, the WebEx Network Recording Player and WebEx Player, and their SD-WAN offering. It kind of goes without saying, but patch, patch, patch. But as I'll mention in an upcoming story, also test, test, test before you widely deploy these patches. And speaking of patches, if you patched your VMware ESXi with the ESXi patches that were released on October 20th, and you expect it to be secure from the CVE-2020-3992 vulnerability, surprise, you are not completely secure with that patch, unfortunately. New patches have now been made available to plug that hole for that vulnerability. For ESXi version 7, if you're running that, You'll want to get on to ESXi 70U1A-1711-9627 if you're on version 6.7 you'll want to be on dash 2020-11301-SG and if you are still on 6.5 you're going to want 
401-SG. And if you're on VMware Cloud Foundation version 3.x or 4.x, there's currently no updated patches for this. Next up in the patches stories, Citrix published a new KB article, CTX285059, which discloses two vulnerabilities, CVE-2020-8269, which could allow an unprivileged Windows user on the Citrix VDA to perform arbitrary command execution in the system context. It said that the attacker must be an authenticated user on the Windows VDA and have write access to the C directory. And in this article, at least, they say it's the root of C, which doesn't seem very likely. And the other vulnerability is CVE-2020-8270, which is allowing an unprivileged Windows user on a Citrix VDA again, or an SMB user, to perform arbitrary command execution again in the system context. For this, it said the attacker must be an authenticated user on the VDA or be authenticated to Windows SMB service running on the VDA. And these vulnerabilities affect Citrix virtual apps and desktop 2006 and earlier, CVAD 1912 LTSR CU1 and earlier, Zen App and Zen Desktop 715 LTSR CU6 and earlier, Zen App and Zen Desktop 76 CU8 and earlier, which means if you're on any version earlier than CVAD 2006, you're affected by these vulnerabilities. So like I said, while at least 2020-8269 shouldn't be much of a threat to most because, you know, how many let their users have right access to the root of C. Citrix does still strongly recommend that customers upgrade to a fixed version as soon as possible, which would mean if you're on 2006, for example, you want to get to 2009 or later. If you're on 1912 LTSR CU1, it looks like there's some hot fixes available. Likewise, for 715 CU6, there's hot fixes. And for 7.6, you want to get on CU9. There were reports this week from Trammell Hudson about a hack called the sleep attack, which is a physical local attack possible on Intel chips, specifically through their SPI flash chip. The sleep attack can modify all of memory, allowing an adversary with physical access, such as when clearing customs at an airport, to disable the lock screen process and access encrypted disks without requiring a password. It was patched by Intel as part of Intel-SA-00391. It's a really interesting report by Mr. Hudson. I recommend everyone check it out. On the topic of Intel, Microsoft has made new microcode patches available via their update service. Windows 10 20H2, 20.04, and older versions are getting these microcode updates. If you've been paying attention over the last couple of years, these microcode updates are vitally important. However, bleepingcomputer.com warns that some on older processors may have some adverse effects caused by installing some microcode updates. So be sure to test, test, test. This is that story that I was warning about a bit earlier. 
A former Microsoft engineer has been sentenced to nine years in prison for stealing $10 million worth of store credit. Ars Technica reports that the U.S. prosecutors say he netted at least $2.8 million, which he used to buy a $160,000 Tesla and a $1.6 million waterfront home. For his early purchases, he made little effort to cover his tracks, but as his thefts got bigger, he took more precautions. He used test accounts that had been created by colleagues for later thefts. This was easy to do because the testers kept track of test account credentials in a shared online document. He used throwaway email addresses and began using a virtual private networking service. The report says he netted only $2.8 million of the $10 million worth of store credit because kind of obviously he sold them at a steep discount. It looks like he also used some mixing service and Bitcoin to try and cover his tracks too. It said that he reported the Bitcoin windfall to the IRS on his taxes, but claimed that the Bitcoins had been given to him as a gift from his father. He was convicted of five counts of wire fraud, six counts of money laundering, two counts of aggravated identity theft, two counts of filing false tax returns, and one count each of mail fraud, access device fraud, and access to a protected computer in furtherance of fraud. He's been ordered to pay $8.3 million in restitution. It seems unlikely that he'll ever be able to do that. The government says he may be deported back to the Ukraine after serving his time in prison. Some new enhanced DNS features in Azure Firewall are now generally available, including custom DNS, DNS proxy, and fully qualified domain name filtering in network rules. The release statement suggests that since its launch in September 2018, Azure Firewall has been hard-coded to use Azure DNS to ensure the service can reliably resolve its outbound dependencies. Custom DNS allows you to configure Azure Firewall to use your own DNS server while ensuring the firewall outbound dependencies are still resolved with Azure DNS. And you can now use fully qualified domain names in network rules based on DNS resolution in Azure Firewall and Firewall Policy. And with DNS proxy enabled, Azure Firewall can process and forward DNS queries from a virtual network to your desired DNS server. They say that that functionality is crucial and required to have reliable FQDN filtering in your network rules. So overall, it sounds like the Azure Firewall is becoming a more mature, usable product, which is good for everyone. This week, Microsoft shared a really interesting article on memory usage in Microsoft Teams. It goes into a little on why memory utilization is so high. Now, other than stating if your machine has more memory, it will use more memory. And if you have less memory on your machine, it will use less. There's not a whole lot to go off on how you can maybe make things better performance-wise for yourself. Unfortunately, it's an Electron app. It's Chromium-based. It's just a pig. But you get to understand a little bit of why it's a pig by reading the article. I'll share that article with this episode, which is episode 150 on 5bytespodcast.com. You'll find it under reference links. PDQ Deploy and PDQ Inventory version 19.2.137.0 have been released. It includes improved CPU usage, 
the scan profiles feature that you find on the left window within the console has been moved so it's more prominent within the inventory they clarify errors when a target doesn't meet system requirements for dotnet installation byte sizes are now displayed as decimals rounded to the one decimal point and more mostly it's kind of small cosmetic changes but also they're changes for the better so everyone should be happy with that Remote Desktop Manager version 2020.3 is now available and the great news is it now supports Linux. And who knows, this is steering things a little more toward the Linux desktop becoming a possibility for Windows admins. Still seems far way off in my opinion. I don't think most people are going to put themselves through what it takes to operate efficiently on a Linux desktop. But hey, it's one step closer so that's cool. Microsoft is considering a new certification for the Windows Virtual Desktop Administrator role and has asked for input from subject matter experts. So this is a survey that you can fill in online. And just as I said earlier, I will share a link with this episode to that if you'd like to complete the survey. And now let's get into a weekly webinar. There's going to be a one-day virtual event that focuses on remote work management, security, automation, and reporting best practices for COVID-19 and beyond held by PolicyPack. The event is going to take place between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Eastern on November 19th, 2020, and it is 100% free. This is definitely one you're not going to want to miss. There's an all-star lineup with the likes of James Rankin, Jen Sheeran, Sandy Zhang, Sammy Leho, Stephen Rose, and of course, Jeremy Moskowitz, and more, covering a very wide range of great topics. And I'll share a link to the registration with this episode. I'm looking forward to this one myself. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. This week, I saw that Ryan and Yeto from the GoEUC.com team shared a pretty interesting looking video that they created on the topic of Python versus PowerShell. Now, I use PowerShell quite a lot in my day-to-day work. I've never actually used Python. Well, that's not true. I've maybe used it a couple of times on some throwaway scripts or mostly scripts that other people had started and created, and I just needed to tweak a little bit. But My point being, I never got deep into Python. So this is actually pretty interesting to learn maybe what are some of the commonality between PowerShell? What is it that PowerShell does better? What is it that PowerShell does better? What is it that Python does better? And what are their use cases? So I haven't actually watched the video yet myself, but I'm looking forward to, and I thought you guys might like it too. An interesting little tip here, but if your Microsoft Teams is auto-adjusting your microphone levels and it's driving you crazy, it turns out what you'll have to do is disable the Xbox game bar from your Windows settings on your Windows 10 machine. The recommendation goes from Michael Mardelt that if you hear someone's voice is cutting in and out on their Teams chat, tell them to try this setting. And then after they've disabled that setting, manual adjustment to the mic levels might be required. Pretty interesting. I know that Xbox game bar 
used to pop up, I think, when you were launching Citrix Sessions, I think it was. Maybe it was VMware Horizon desktops or something like that. But it seems like it's a little bit of a noisy program for all things Xbox, but for of all things for Xbox. But yeah, if you've got home users in particular who have that Xbox game bar and they're using Teams, that's a pretty good tip from Michael. James Kinden posted a second part in his blog series on enhancing Citrix MCS with Azure. In this part, he talked accelerating the network. So I'm looking forward to part three, if there's going to be a part three. I read part one. It was really, really interesting. It's not something that I can apply to my current day-to-day role, but I know the day is coming that I'm going to be Citrix MCS with Azure again. So it's all good stuff to know. In a couple of quick hits, Citrix Converge have published some of the videos from their event. And one of the videos was from James Rankin on how to enable users in a pandemic. And another one's from Steve Noel, who did a session on a morning health check report that he has created. And he shared the script too. But obviously with the video, you're able to go through step-by-step through the script with him And he gives some suggestions on how to utilize them and to make your admin life better. So it looks like the Citrix Converge videos are a treasure trove of valuable content. So I'll share a link to those two videos, but you might want to check out some of the other videos that were published too. Jason Samuel shared an excellent blog post on a deep dive into the Citrix HDX FIDO2 and Windows Hello Optimized Virtual Channel with virtual desktops and apps using USB, NFC, BLE, and built-in authenticators. So as usual, this is a really in-depth article by Jason. It must have taken him a long time to create, but it's very, very detailed. And this is one that if it doesn't apply to your current work environment, it's going to soon because security is paramount in becoming much more important and of priority for business decision makers. So this is definitely worth checking out to bring yourself up to speed, even if it doesn't apply to your current role. Ryan Mangan shared a video on the CIMFS MSIX app attached testing, which I know that's still a relatively new feature or technology, but if you're in the app packaging, app virtualization, and app delivery space, this is one you'll want to check out. Remy Custer has a good blog post that covers deploying Google Chrome updates and how he addressed some issues that he encountered after previous upgrades in the past, like, for example, it changing the default browser. So I think there were multiple Google Chrome zero-day vulnerabilities in the last few weeks, so this is probably going to be relevant to everyone who's deploying Google Chrome in the enterprise. And finally for this week, Dennis Moorman shared an update to his BG Info script, the one that includes stuff like FSLogic's information, WEM information, and a lot more information than you'd maybe just have in your current default BG Info. And the updates for this release is he included a free profile size in percent as an option within the BG Info and also the WEM local cache refresh time, which could be very useful. Well, that's it for another week. I'd like to thank you all so much for listening.